This is The Rooted Podcast, a conversation about the Christian worldview and its implications for every part of life. The Rooted Podcast is hosted by Steve Royce and Brady Johnson. Together, they have over two decades of experience in the business and tech industries and share a desire to help others filter all of life through the Christian faith. Hi, and thanks for listening to The Rooted Podcast. I'm Steve. And I'm Brady. And on this episode, we're going to do a deep dive on the more difficult topic of why does God let children die? And uh, if you followed Steve's Fruit Snacks, we have four uh, little snippets there that I think are really meaty. One of them is like 20 minutes, which is a lot of content, but it's definitely worth the listen if you haven't already. So go back, listen to those ones. And uh, you'll be caught up to kind of where we're going to be chatting today. Yeah, it's the Canaanite one. That's uh, that's rough stuff, but it, it comes up so, so much. I can't tell you how many times watching apologists on YouTube and stuff like that where they've been doing Q&As at high school events or college campuses, and it just comes up almost every time, or at least it did for a long time yeah. until the the more people, I think, were equipped to really to really answer it, but it's tough stuff. But but part of why, part of why it's so rough is just so many reasons. We're not used to thinking of children as perpetrators Mm -hmm. in our society because that's just not, thank God that that's not common in our society uh, where we live, but it is common in other societies. And it was more common in the ancient world, uh, life was just so much more rough until historically about yesterday. <laughs> so most people throughout history have just had a much harder go of it and than, than any of us have had to deal with. And that's, that's very new. But the other part is that we really don't study history and we don't study those people groups at all. And so we know very little about who they were and what they did. And that's part of the problem because it's really weird, dude. There's this tendency, it seems like, to assume uh, innocence or purity, if I could use that term, on behalf of a people group we know nothing about. And so with the Canaanites, like, well, I don't know anything about the Canaanites, so I'm going to assume that they didn't deserve whatever happened to them. And to a certain extent, I think that's good. You You should assume... If something bad happens to somebody, you shouldn't assume it was their fault. <laughs> right, exactly. But by the same token, we don't know anything about the Canaanites. And so we just sort of assume that whoever's the aggressor is 100% in the wrong here. And how could God command that and all this other? Because we don't know what was going on in those cultures. And once we do, we start to realize this is a way more complicated topic than just, it, it's just not a black and white, cut and dried thing. And it's really messy. It's really ugly, and the, the but that's what the Canaanite cultures did, and they practiced, and it was really ugly, and it was, it was really just morally disgusting. A lot of the stuff that they were involved in, and that they forced their children to be involved in as well. And so, right, it's a hard episode, but it's it's again, it's like necessary background so that we as Christians can be equipped to really have a conversation about 
this in a way that is uh, is historically accurate and that treats the text of the Bible and God fairly. Yeah. And I think that's, that's one thing that, you know, when you get into this topic, you know, you said, you know, kind of on the early outset of, of this topic specifically is that you really have to phrase the question is, are we talking about someone specifically or, you know, a, a very closely related question to this, which is, you know, why did God let my insert relationship to said child here versus why does God let children in general die? You know, when you frame that question properly, one, you get to know kind of the headspace that this person might be in who's asking this question, which, you know, go back to our previous deep dive where we kind of talked about having that empathy and weeping with those who weep. But you also get to kind of understand, okay, well, because this isn't something that's emotionally driven, we can get into the more logical you know, conversational where you can now get into things like the culture of the Canaanites. Right. Yeah. This goes back to some of the original podcasts that we did when we first started on evangelism. And we talked about this principle way back then in our first season, just about how you, it's your job to gauge the person that you're talking to. Basically it's your job to read the room right, and to try and figure out where is this person? And moreover, where is this question coming from, right? Is this coming from a personal place? Well, in that case, the answer and the the right way to address it and approach it is different than if this is just a intellectual question or something that someone heard and somewhere and they're trying to, they're trying to sort it out. Is it a barrier to faith and belief for them because they really just can't make logical sense. They can't put all the pieces of the puzzle in place. Or is this much more raw and come from a place of personal hurt and trauma? And I mean, it seems intuitive to say that obviously those answers should be different, but it's amazing how oftentimes they're not, right? right. That we don't take the time to distinguish between uh, the the sort of source for where the question is coming from, and it makes all the difference. It's if you if you don't take the time to do that, you're basically stepping into a conversational minefield, mm-hmm. and you don't even know it. And not only are you going to do damage to yourself and maybe hurt your own testimony, but you're going to do damage to the other person, right. and you could end up you could end up pushing them maybe further away from faith right. based on a, what is perceived to be a really just trite or callous response yep. from a Christian. And that's not what we want at all. We want to, so, so it's just important that we take the time to just understand the context. Just like if we're studying a passage of scripture, take the time and understand the context that has led us up to this moment. And you're going to just be so much better off to, to get the right answer. Yeah, definitely. And I think that, you know, obviously it holds true with really everything we're talking about in this whole problem of evil is, you know, understanding the context, understanding the person who, you know, if they're coming at it from that emotional side, obviously, you know, the way you approach it is going to change, you know, but I think for, from the practicality standpoint, a lot of what we're getting into steps outside of that, where maybe they're beyond it being too close and personal at that point. And they really are seeking from a, a logical perspective. Sure. Yeah. Or it again is, is that hypothetical. I'm just trying to score points or, 
you know, this is just a common uh, defense that I've heard from from my position. So I'm going to throw it back at you type thing. Yeah, they might be they might be someone who's never had any kind of personal experience with this. This is just more of a it could be a gotcha right. that they're that they're coming at. So, again, obviously, those are very, very different headspaces. And so it's on you as the person who's fielding that question to really, really make sure that you've, you've got that figured out. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, once you get past that point, you know, or you get to this point where you can really look at it from a logical standpoint, you know, just like everything else, there's, there's nuance to it. But once you start to break things apart, you start to study the history again, talking about the Canaanite history or, you're looking at, you know, practical perspective and trying to just wrap your head around why, why certain things took place in history and why God might command a very specific talking about the Canaanites. Why, why was it that that perception was saying these guys got to go all of them, women, children, animals. And it, it, it obviously raises other questions, I think, which is why the podcast episode was 20 minutes, but even then that conversation we could probably spend a whole series on uh, just getting into that side of things and looking at that culture and, and really deep diving and understanding why God's perspective was what it was and how we can get our head in that same space. Yeah. And as you were talking, I was reminded of a passage here in, in Genesis 15 that sometimes we don't think about the Bible in the sense that, that we wouldn't read or approach the Bible like we would approach a story, like a fictional story. And I understand why there's a lot of hesitancy to do that. I think I've, I don't know if we've talked about this or not on the podcast at this point, but I know I've talked about it with, with uh, some folks in our church, but just this idea that I understand we, we want to approach scripture if we believe that it's the word of God with appropriate reverence. But one of the things that's really fascinating about Scripture is while it is a composition of many documents over many years from many different authors and in different languages at times, there is also, for those of us who believe that it is the inspired, inerrant Word of God, that there is also essentially one author, and that is the Holy Spirit of God. Mm -hmm. And so with that in mind, if we if we approach Scripture sometimes— from a place of looking at it like, well, if there was one author who was telling one story and they were sort of weaving things together, then that's different than what you would necessarily expect sometimes. And, and what I'm getting at here is this idea of like foreshadowing. That's a typically a literary device that gets used in fiction, at least in modern fiction. But we see an example of foreshadowing right in Genesis 15 that leads us directly to this incident in 1 Samuel 15 that we talked about on the fruit snacks. And it is from Genesis 15, starting in verse 12, it says this, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. 
As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So right there, we have foreshadowing of the exodus and the enslavement in Egypt and the judgment that God brought upon the Egyptians and the Egyptian gods. But we also have this interesting tie-in to, yes, God is doing that because he's, he's moving a lot of the pieces around the board here, so to speak. So yes, he's preparing a place for his people eventually. He's also allowing them to take a 400-year detour to that place for a couple reasons. One, because he wants to judge the Egyptians for their idolatry and their rebellion. But also, he says something interesting about the Amorites, who are part of the Canaanite clans, that their iniquity is not yet complete. So what does he mean by that? And a lot of biblical scholars would sort of conclude that part of what he's getting at here is to say that the stuff that we discussed on the last week's episode about the Canaanites and their sin, those practices developed and worsened, you know, that that you didn't start with Sodom and Gomorrah the way that it was when fire fell from heaven and burned it all up on day one. Mm -hmm. Sodom and Gomorrah became Sodom and Gomorrah over time. And in the same way, Canaanite culture sort of devolved into what I described on the fruit snacks episode over time from God's perspective there. It's, it's in a, some way kind of like the Ninevites, right? You have this example of a pagan people who are thoroughly evil in their practices. And yet God is willing in, in the case of Jonah to send someone there. If God knows that there's even one person who would respond. And in the case of Nineveh, the whole city responds, which is, God rejoices over and and Jonah pouts about. But in the case of Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham pleads with God that he would spare the city if he could even find 10 righteous people. And we know that the city isn't spared. And so God also knows, just like he knew with Nineveh, except the opposite is true in this case, that there there's no one in Sodom uh, or Gomorrah that are righteous and and so they are deserving of their judgment and they wouldn't repent they're they're not going to repent and in the same way god knows the same thing about the amorites about the canaanites and yet there's 400 years that god allows to pass is that just because god is a fan of allowing evil and suffering to continue i don't think so it's this is i think where we would do do better to sort of take our cue from scripture would be in a passage like 2 Peter 3.9, where Peter says this. He says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. I think 400 years would be considered slow by most people's standards, right? But is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So I think if we tie this doctrine in, and this discussion and topic in with previous topics like the fate of the unevangelized, for instance, and what does God know and how does he know it, that it's much more likely, in my opinion, that in that 400-year span, God knew that there were people who would respond to whatever light that they happened to be given in that time and place or could even individually come to become followers of Yahweh 
And there was a certain point, which they would reach about 400 years later, where that was no longer the case. Basically, that everyone in that culture in that that time who would respond had already done it. And God knows that at this point, I'm dealing with a, a people who will wholesale reject me, and and they won't. So, at this point, it's time to bring judgment. Yep. And and so only God would know something like that. And this is something that we'll we sort of get into in later topics on the problem of evil is just about how difficult it is to sit in judgment of what God should or shouldn't have done based on virtually no knowledge compared to what God has. And we just don't know because we don't have the perspective of God. We just don't know the answers to questions like that. And so what we're left to do is I think display faith which is essentially just trust in in God to say, based on the character of God that's revealed to us in Scripture, based on the character of God that he's demonstrated to me in my own life and in the lives of my family and, and those that I know and people in my church, I am left in a position where I have to make a decision to basically say, I have to trust God and just trust him that he had good reasons and that he knew what he was doing and that he will never, he'll never do anything wrong or I don't trust that. And that's really what it boils down to in in a certain sense is it comes down to a passage like this. Look, we can build the case. We can look at the history, the context, the culture. We can look at the scriptures, but it's going to boil down sooner or later to trust And while that's definitely true with the Canaanites, it also is true with regard to just answering the bigger question of why does God let children die? Mm -hmm. I don't think for a second that God wants anyone to die, especially children. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is the same, this is the same person, Jesus, who said that if you, if you cause one of these little ones to go astray or to stumble, it would be better for you to tie an anchor around your neck and to chuck yourself into the ocean Mm -hmm. than to deal with the consequences of messing with a little kid. Mm -hmm. So I think Jesus takes very seriously the, the notion of children suffering and dying and, and all this. And I think it, I think it breaks God's heart. I think it grieves God's heart. So the, the question that we have, though, is to say, look, we have all this sort of out there in Scripture and in experience and things like that. And to sort of bring it all together so that we can form a coherent thought about it, I, I think at the center of that, there does need to be trust. We can build a case. We can say this this is plausible. It lines up and it's consistent and it's coherent. But the sort of last step that's going to tie it all together is just say, do you trust God or don't you? Do you trust that God is going to use, just like with Joseph, that he is going to take what was evil maybe and and he is able to turn it for good? Mm -hmm. That there's something that he can bring out of this that he and only he can redeem it in some way, shape, or form. And that, and this is again with later episodes of the fruit snacks, when we sort of turn the corner and get into looking ahead and and having a more eternal perspective on suffering is that it isn't just this life that we have to think about. We also have all of eternity to consider as well. And, And that's really when we get out of our depth with regard to the bigger picture, 
We just don't. There's no possible way we can know that. Right. We can't see how whatever happens in our lives to us on any given day is going to not only have an impact out like a ripple effect in time and space and history on this earth, let alone how it's going to have a ripple effect or an impact throughout all of eternity. We just don't know the answers to these. And so you're left with a, you're left with the decision to, to trust God with it. Yeah. I think that's a, a perfect way to put that because we have such finite perspectives. I mean, it is minuscule compared to the potence of God. Right. And go back to the uh, Omni attributes episodes to really uh, refresh your, your, uh, your memory on that. <laughs> and study up. Yeah. If you're lacking in that faith and that trust in in God's uh, omni attributes that touch up on that. Yeah. And I want to say too, before we kind of move on that what I, what I'm not trying to say is that, you know, if something happens, that's just terrible. Well, you just got to trust God because not, not only am I not saying that, I don't even think that God is saying that because if you look throughout the ministry of, of Jesus, certainly you will see a pattern, but you see this same pattern because we believe that God is the same yesterday and today and forever that you see this same pattern demonstrated throughout the old Testament as well. So it's not just like Jesus is the only one that does this. God does this always. But what you see when Jesus asks for faith is that he first will do some sort of sign or miracle or work and, and sort of proactively demonstrate that he is not just, he's not just talking. He's not just all talk, that he will do some sort of miracle or sign or wonder. And then on the basis of that, he will then invite people to line in the sand, make a decision. But it's on the basis of the evidence that they've just been given that he is who he says he is. Not just this blind, well, you're just going to have to take my word for it. Right. No, he like raised someone from the dead <laughs> or he, he told a man who was paralyzed for decades to stand up and take his mat and walk. And he did. Right. Or he, he took a, uh, someone who was blind from birth and he gave him his sight. Right. And then he says to people, believe in me. Right. And we see the same thing with God in the Old Testament. I mean, look at uh, look at what happens. Like, we'll go back to the Exodus. Look at what happens with Moses. Where Moses is like, "Well, who am I going to tell them sent me?" And he's like, "Well, you're going to say that it's it's me. I am." Yeah, but well, how will they believe me? And he's like, "Well, here are some signs. Right, mm-hmm. you can uh, you can miraculously give yourself and heal yourself from leprosy." That ought to get their attention. Also, you can uh, you can toss your rod down on the ground and command it to turn into a, a, a big old snake. That might you know that might turn some heads, right? Yeah. So, and also every time you come in direct contact or conflict with one of the so-called Egyptian gods, you're gonna you're gonna outdo them, right? You're just gonna demonstrate complete mastery of them. Like for instance, the Nile was worshipped as a god. You're gonna turn that to blood. And then you're going to ask people when all this is done, then you're going to ask people to believe, but it's on the basis of the evidence and of the signs themselves. 
And so I, I say that because when we're talking about trusting God, it's not just some, well, you're just going to have to take God's word for it, is we need to look at whatever happens in our lives, whatever suffering that might be, in context of who God not only says he is, but who God has demonstrated himself to be in the past, in our own lives and in scripture. No matter what happens to me, no matter how bad it gets, no matter how bleak things may look, none of it changes the fact that Jesus died and rose again. He's The tomb is still empty. And so it's in light of what he has already done, what he's already accomplished, that he's asking me in any given circumstance that I face to trust him. And this is part of what Peter is getting at in, in his first epistle to the people who are undergoing persecution. He's like, look, I know that you're dealing with a lot right now, but I'm asking you to remember what God has done and who he is. And I'm asking you to endure. I'm asking you to, to not not just to grit your teeth and sort of suck it up, but that you have a great inheritance coming because God promised it for that, that you would if you endure and how do we know that he's good for his word? Well, look at, you know, how many promises has he not kept? None, right? So every, so you have this list of examples of God's faithfulness over and over and over again. And every time there's been a question, he's proved himself out. And so that's, that's why when we get to this point of, look, I have to trust God, I should have a list of examples I can look back to to say every time I've needed to trust God in the past, he's proven himself trustworthy. So in this case, as painful as it is, when I need to make that decision to trust God, I'm basing it on all the past examples of God's faithfulness and not just, you know, out of out of thin air. That's not what this is about. So I think for for people who may be actually dealing with loss or something, that's that's an important distinction because we we trust Christ because He has shown Himself to be trustworthy. It's yeah. based on the the historical data and and accounts that we have of His life, His miracles, His death, and His resurrection. And so He's He's more than proven to me that I can trust Him with with my life. So that's when he asked me to do it. It needs to be based on those things and not just my current circumstances. Yeah. Well, that's very well put. I mean, you take, take scripture, you look at all of these examples of, of just seeing God as being trustworthy. And then you see these other passages talking about how God will only allow so much evil and you just have to understand and, and believe and accept that, God will only allow so much evil and with his understanding that we just can't even fathom as to why some of these situations might happen in the way that they do. Yeah. I think another thing to, to consider, and this is more getting back into the, I guess the apologetic side of it with regard to God only allowing so much evil in the world. So something to think about, and I don't think we covered this before is one of the objections that can come up sometimes is just the the sheer it's it's sort of the opposite approach right with, with a question like why does god let a child die the question is about a very specific instance of evil in the world something that should not have happened that did 
sometimes the approach can get completely reversed and we're not talking about specifics at all. Instead, the approach that's taken is, well, it's not even about any one thing. It's about the sheer volume and weight of all the evil that exists in the world. And how can all of that evil be okay? It's just staggering, you know, and, and we got into this a little bit when, when I started working through, uh, I think it would have been the first couple weeks or maybe week two and three of just all the examples of human depravity and evil mm-hmm. that are in the world. And we barely scratched the surface. Like we went back through maybe about a hundred years of history and we got all that stuff. So there's so, so much more evil that we can, that we can uh, use as an example. And the person might be saying, well, it's that amount of evil that just makes this whole thing unbelievable to me. A, a good God would never allow that. But we need to step back and we need to remember a couple things, ask a couple questions. First of all, who exactly are we, when we talk about all the evil in the world, who exactly do we have in mind when we're thinking that anyone is experiencing that, right? You experience the evil and the suffering and the pain that you yourself come into contact with or that the people close to you do. I experience a limited amount of that pain and suffering. But the the issue at hand is really that we've got, you know, a huge pie, say, of all the evil and suffering in the world. No one person is taking more than a very, very tiny sliver of that pie. So while, yes, in some total, there's a lot of evil and suffering in the world. No one experiences all of the evil and suffering in the world. In fact, you could you could actually make a case or an argument that there was only ever one person to experience all the evil and suffering in the world, and it was Jesus mm-hmm. on the cross. So if anyone deserves to complain about how much evil and suffering there is in the world, it would be Jesus. Mm-hmm. Because he's the only person who bore all the sin of the world on his shoulders when he when he died for it. And no one else, no one else experiences the sheer weight of all the evil and suffering, not just that was in the world at the time, but that has ever been and will ever be. Only Jesus dealt with that. And he did. He dealt with it. So I'm not sure exactly where where an objection like that is coming from other than to say like, wow, there sure is a lot. I don't like that. It sure seems like God, God should want less, I guess. But I think this is where the power of the gospel comes in is, is part of what makes the gospel so beautiful and so profound and really resonates with so many people is Christianity is utterly unique in that there is no other religion or worldview where the central religious figure or even the the deity in that religion or worldview is transcendent in the way that Jesus is in, in Christianity. In other words, Muslims don't believe that Allah cares truly about what they face day to day in terms of suffering and pain, much less would that he would deign to take on human form and experience it so that he can empathize and sympathize with what it's like to experience those things. Those things are so far beneath him, which is why the doctrine of the incarnation is offensive to Muslims, right? They think, how dare you say that God would take on a human body and and have to deal with 
all the limitations of a human body and bodily functions and all these other things, that's that's blasphemy from a Muslim perspective. In Christianity, by contrast, though, part of the answer to suffering is the life of Jesus, right? That, as the writer of Hebrews says, that we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus came to earth and he lived and died as a human and he understands what it's like to be a human. He understands what it's like to live with evil in the world and to be in a world that is suffused with pain and suffering and evil and all kinds of things that are not the way that they should be. Jesus experienced hunger. He experienced thirst. He experienced homelessness. He experienced all these all these things and poverty and so on and so forth that a lot of people deal with. And the whole point is to say that only in the Christian worldview does God take it upon himself to stoop that low to come and to understand what our lived experience is like so that he gets it. He's the only He's the only God that exists in all the worldviews and religions that are out there that does. No one else makes that kind of a claim uh, besides Christians. And so the life and the death of Jesus it is one of the most profound answers to suffering because Jesus suffered and he came and he experienced it firsthand. And so that's one thing that we, I think, need to think about as well. So yeah, on the one hand, only God himself actually is aware of the sum total of all the evil and suffering. You and I aren't. So we can we can theorize about it, but we don't experientially have awareness of it like mm-hmm. God does. Also, only God suffered and died and took all of that on of himself. So if anyone can complain about it, it's him. And also, that's the point of the gospel is that if you're suffering, you have a savior who also suffered. Mm-hmm. He understands. He can sympathize. He gets it. And there's in Jesus, in the person of Jesus, a this picture of God is coming to you in your suffering and he's putting his arm around you and he's saying I understand and he means it and it's the only it's the only religion where a claim like that actually would ring true because no one else did that and I think that's one of the most powerful things is, is to also when we have questions about suffering is to sort of reflect on Jesus and on the cross because his suffering was ultimate. And so if there's anyone who can who who we can reach out to in prayer in our suffering, it is Jesus. And I think that should be a great comfort to a lot of people uh, as well. Thanks for joining us on the Rooted podcast, a creation of Rooted Productions and an affiliate of the Oasis Church in Gilbert, Arizona. For more information about the podcast or to submit a question or comment, please visit us at rooted.productions. Follow us on Instagram at rooted.productions or email podcast at rooted.productions. That's rooted.productions. We hope you'll join us next time.